the Jericho Network on Westwood One. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Mitch LaFon. Welcome to another episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon here on Westwood One. And, of course, joining me on the phone, as always, it is the one, the only, the uh, venerable. Alan Niven. Good day, sir. Good day, Mitch. How are you doing today? Good, good. Do you like the way I, I, I extended the intro just to make it sound more important and more... Oh, there's Alan. Um, no, actually, it went by me. I was uh, picking a couple of mints out of the uh, little crystal bowl in front of me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well, we tried. But uh, today we have got two guests. Uh, one is... Tony Lombardi Jr. He, of course, runs or is part of TNT Records, and they have Chris Cat One, the Peter Chris solo album from 1994 that they have re-released and done a whole bunch of bells and whistles to. And that is a little sort of stopgap interview right in the middle of the show. But first and foremost, producer extraordinaire, the one, the only Tom Worman and... Uh, have you had any contact with Tom? Do you know Tom? Are you aware of Tom? What's your Tom take? Um, I'm very aware of Tom. And uh, I did actually uh, get to meet him when he was uh, doing A&R at um, Electra Records. Um, when a friend of mine uh, just started working in the, in the A&R department, Tom Zutout. And I got to meet Tom then, and um, was very aware of, of Tom's work. Um, you know, for example, you know, if you say Molly Hatchet, I'll say Dreams I'll Never See, which sounds as wonderful today as the very first time I heard it. Um, if you say Tom, I'm very aware of, you know, for example, Stranglehold. Um, which I think is maybe the apex of Ted Nugent on on record. Um, if, and if you say Tom Worman, um, also very aware of Cheap Trick, and I think that's an interesting thing to look at and discuss. Um, and I, I always thought that Tom was very aware of Ted Templeman. I got a sense that Tom knew exactly who Ted was and what he was doing and uh, watched very closely what Ted Templeman did. And Ted Templeman, to me, was uh, a seminal moment. Um, you know, back when I was a kid and in that period of time, usually when you went to see a band, they were better live than recorded. And I went to see this American band that I was really excited about and saw the show and went, hmm, they're not quite as good as they are on record. And I went home and picked up the record and read the back of it very carefully and trying to identify what might be the, uh, the missing ingredient. And it was the first time that I'd become aware of what a producer was. was I read the name Ted Templeman as producer on the record. And from that moment on, I wanted to know what a producer did. And... You know, obviously that, you know, a seminal moment in my life. Um, 
And I became very aware that a producer can have a major impact on a band. And I, I think Tom had a major impact on a number of bands. And I'd love to talk to you about Cheap Trick on that. I would, and and just a quick fact, uh, Ted Templeman also did a Cheap Trick album called Woke Up With A Monster, which a lot of fans say is not good enough and is terrible, and I've always loved it. I don't know why it gets grief, but... So, so let me quickly ask you here about Tom, because he did those big Cheap Trick records, Heaven Tonight and Dream Police and In Color, and he did the, you know, the, the Ted Nugent stuff and the Motley Crue stuff and Flirting with Disaster by Molly Hatchett and Stay Hungry by Twisted Sister, which in a lot of the cases are the seminal albums, are the big albums, and yet when you talk to people in Cheap Trick, they go, oh, Tom, he made us weak, and, he, and you talk to uh, Twisted Sister and, uh, and Nikki Six, uh, and, you know, Twisted Sister re-recorded Stay Hungry as Still Hungry. Um, Cheap Trick re-recorded In Color as In Color, produced by Steve Albini. Why do you think that is? Because if it wasn't for his magic touch, and that's what I'm going to call it, his magic touch, I don't know. I, th- I think if, if, if Twisted Sister had been heavy metal on Stay Hungry, probably nobody would care about who's not, we're not going to take it right now. I, I mean... What's what's the deal there? Well, I, I, part part of it, I think, is situational and context. And in the situation and the context of when these records were made, the primary way of getting attention for a band was through radio. And I think Tom had a really good sense of what sounded good on the radio and how to arrange a song and record a song, so as it translated through broadcast and worked and had a sense of dynamics and a sense of excitement when it came out the other end, you know, because you'd have compression squishing you all the way through. Um, but, you know, let me just make a couple of observations here about, about the tricksters. Um, I, I was given, I was actually visiting a distributor in, uh, in Indianapolis in 1977. And the guy I was meeting with gave me this album and said, I think you might like this. And it was Cheap Trick's first album. And I did like it. And it had, you know, it was an edginess and it was something that um, I I could understand the approach on the record given that this was uh, the era of punk. And uh, being a little edgier was... um, absolutely de rigueur in England at that time. Um, And also, you know, in context, bear in mind that Tom Petty was a huge hit in the United Kingdom before anybody even knew his name in the United States because he rode in on that wave too. But here's a couple of things about that first Cheap Trick album. Keep in mind, it didn't even crack the Billboard Top 200 chart. Um, I think Cheap Trick were, given that, were lucky get a shot at a second album and I'm going to talk as a fan rather than a producer and I'm going to talk as a fan rather than somebody who you know is acquainted with Tom um, as a fan I thought he got it right on In Color and I thought In Color was a much better record than the first record and keep in mind that the Budokan live record that came after In Color generated uh, most of the material that was played on the Budokan record 
you know, and just just keep in mind that, you know, part of what a producer does is before they record, they'll go and watch the band to try and identify the songs um, that they think will be convincing live. And the whole process of recording a song establishes its foundation for its live performance. Every time that I've ever worked with anybody, any song that we've done pre-production on and then recorded has gone up in steps live thereafter. It is, it is much better performed once you've gone through the process of actually getting it tight and recording it. Um, so I think Tom did a really good job on those. And, you know, and I think that he was very aware of, you know, an album like The Captain and Me that, uh, you know, was the record that I looked at and went, what's a producer? Um, so I'm going to disagree with the tricksters. I think Tom got it right. And I can't see where the Motleys can complain because I think Tom got it right, um, given the abilities of the band at that time, and made a better sounding record than the first record. I mean, the first record to me was a, uh, a glorious train crash. I mean, it, its production values are not brilliant. Um, and Tom brought them up, you know, and made them up their game. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, shout at the devil. I mean, you, you go yeah. from, like you say, a, an album that has a very raw sound and, and okay, a lot of fans love it. But to me, shout at the devil, which is Tom or Tom's production he helped out, is their best album. I, I don't think you can even get close to that. And when you go to a concert these days, they're still playing Looks That Kill. They're still playing those songs from that album. They're not playing a lot of the songs from the first album, maybe just Live Wire. So, uh, you know, and you look at the other stuff, Home Sweet Home, and they're playing all the songs that, that Tom wrote, essentially, you know, only well, afterwards. Think, so here's, here's the other thing that I'd point out, is that Tom obviously has a sense of a song. Um, you know, and believe you me, there are producers that don't. Um and for me, I come from a very simplistic point of view that if you do not have a, a clear statement or if you do not have a clear l lyrical or content expression, you've basically got sonic wallpaper. He really understands what a, what a song could and should be. But the thing I really liked about Tom's pr production was he understood guitar too. I mean, you know, go back and listen to Dream's I'll never see of Molly Hatchet. That is just magnificent. And one of the things I loved about Cheap Trick was it was a guitar band as well as a song band. And he was really good at balancing both the vocal and the guitar yeah. and keeping it exciting and putting some... And putting some what? We, we got cut off there. I, well, he, he was good at putting a little bit of grit in there. Yeah, um, yeah you're right. There, there is a grit. And I would argue also that he balanced uh, what you said, but also with radio in mind. So he balanced voice and song and guitar, yep. but also yep. balanced the need of radio. Because listen, record companies needed hits. And bands have longevity because of hits. So you can sit here and say, it's not metal enough, it's not this enough, it's not that. It's like, yeah, well, all those bands, guess what? Ted, Molly, Cheap Trick, you know, 40, 45 years later, you're still here. So, you know, perhaps you shouldn't complain too much. 
I, I think I think they get it wrong. I think they do Tom a disservice. Um, you know, the recording process obviously involves personalities. Um, obviously, you know, as close as I was to uh, the Dorkin band, um, living with Don, um, I heard a lot of stories about George and Tom in the studio. Um, George Lynch and, uh, and <laughs> apparently that didn't work out that well. But it, overall, um, I think Tom had a really good approach. And I would disagree if anybody said, oh, he softened it up or he cheesed it up. The things I'm talking about are not cheesed up. They've got a grit. They've got guitar excitement in there. They've got an energy in there. The rhythm section has got a vitality. Um, he did good work. I agree. Now, uh, folks, the uh, Tom Mormon interview is in two parts. We were doing, uh, we started off the interview and a few minutes in, because uh, Tom runs a bed and breakfast and customers showed up, so he had to go deal with that. And we retook the interview after, uh, literally like 10 minutes after. So it, it is a two parter. And in between that, I am going to give you a chance to listen to Tony Lombardi Jr. He is involved with. Tony Nicole Tony Records, which has released Chris Cat 1. It came out originally in 1994, but they have remixed it, remastered it, you know, blah, 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 the whole, the whole nine yards. And so we talk about that and what it was like putting out that Peter Chris album. But here, first and foremost, is the one, the only, and yes, producer extraordinaire. Tom Worman. We are speaking with a producer and hitmaker, and yes, I'm going to call you that, Tom, hitmaker, the one, the only, Tom Worman, who, uh, before you say anything, Tom, you have had a hand in pretty much every album in the 80s that meant anything to me, <laughs> and even in the 70s, by the way. So so Great. thank you for that. So, so here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Worman. Yeah, so, I mean... Boy, I'm just looking. I mean, you can't even look at the discography without weeping a little bit. I mean, Ted Nugent, Alice Cooper, not Alice Cooper, uh, Cheap Trick, Twisted Sister, Motley Crue, Molly Hatchet, Kicks, um, the Canadian side over here, Glass Tiger, Love and Hate, Crime, L.A. Guns. It goes on and on and on and mm. on. It, it Just wonderful stuff. But before we get to that, uh, I know you've been contemplating putting together a book. So I'm going to ask you about that first. Is this a book about the whole producing thing? What is your concept for a book? Well, there are about 30 chapters, some two pages, some 10 pages. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit about me and how I got into the business, how I could not avoid getting into the business and uh, how it, I was meant to do something else by my parents and by my training. And then, you know, just the story of Epic Records, what the music business was like in the 70s and 80s in its heyday, and how we found acts, how we scouted talent, and how we made records, and why a hit is a hit. Uh, which is that one was was difficult, um, and then um, my personal experiences with people of interest uh, to the reader, and and after that it's just basically um, there's a chapter called the decline, and the last one is called reinvention. 
So um, it's, it's really about my life and music, but it's not about me. It's more about the music industry, how it developed, and, and how it worked. And uh, there, there's a chapter on production values and, and uh, what, you, what, you know, what a producer actually does or did. Because producers these days, they don't do what we did, really. Um, so it's easy to write in the beginning. It all pours out. And then toward, when, you're, when you're nearing the end, you find that every time you address the book, you rewrite instead of add to it. You just start reading, uh, you know, where you want to work. You say, well, I, I think I'll do more on this chapter. I've got a few things to add to this chapter. I saw some notes that I made back then, and I want to put them in. So you'll look for a spot to put to insert that, and you'll say, this could be better. So you start rewriting the chapter, and you don't really move forward. That's where I am now. That's where you are um, now. Well, okay, so yeah, I, I, you know, I need an agent. Uh, I, I'll be. I've had a, a, a couple of people say, "Call my agent," because they've they've read some chapters and they like it and they feel good about, you know, recommending me to their agent. And then the agent will hopefully find a publisher, and the publisher will hopefully give me an editor, and so on and so forth. I've. I've got a lot and read a lot of rock and roll books. They're not very good, by and large, even with ghostwriters. Well, that's so, true. Uh, the one exception being the new Steve Lukather from Toto book, um, The Gospel According to Luke. That is a fantastic book. But yeah, you're right. Mo, I'm not a, a reader yeah. of, of them because a lot of times you are like, you were probably too drunk to remember that, dude. So, like, why? You know? Yeah. Um, well, there we've. I've, I've been. I've had some experiences with, um, you know, Nikki Six's books where we had uh, some disagreement on what actually transpired back then. But, um, you know, the El, the um, Peter Garalnik books, uh, the two volume uh, Elvis uh, biography was in, incredible. In the New York Times called it the most ambitious biographical undertaking of the 20th century. And then there was a really good book um, by Don Felder on, on the Eagles called Heaven and Hell. Yeah, that was a great but, one. But, and Shout by the, you know, the, uh, about the Beatles, but not too many. Anyway, I have high hopes. Yeah, and I have high, high hopes for it too. Now, I know that you had mentioned that for this book, at some point, you would need some photographs. And I guess we could put a call out to people who might have photographs from from those days and those bands who might want to be part of it. Is that is that I get that right? And, and if so, how? Absolutely. I, I, I've just completely failed to get photographs, uh, any visual record of my career. Uh, I have so few. Um you know, there are articles from magazines and newspapers and stuff like that. But, but you, know, though, you know, you know about that. You've got a, uh, just an unbelievable archive of, of photos that I'm always seeing and everyone's always seeing, I guess, any of your Facebook friends on Facebook. It's just, just astonishing. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've put pictures on Facebook of me and people I don't even recognize. I have no idea who they were. And we would we would have been in you know in the studio. So yes, I need photos for 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 this book. Um, 
And I have to where say, where can they send them? How can we we get 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 them? You well, need an yeah, well, they could they could certainly send them to me, and I can send them over to you, or uh, we can. But but there is one in particular. I know that I've been trying to scavenge for pictures of you and Molly Hatchet. Yeah, and, and, and that's like the holy grail. They just don't seem to exist. <laughs> really, I, I haven't found any. I, I have not. Oh been, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there are some of. Um, are I there? know I've seen some of of me back um, in the trailer in the in the the dressing room trailers at Cal Jam, um, the first one at the um, Coliseum. Uh, it was it was huge. It had um, they were all my acts, except maybe one. I mean, uh, I think uh, Ario was there, Ted was there, Mother's Finest, Molly Hatch, and Cheap Trick. I, I think that was that was Cal Jam, and and so there are, I've seen pictures of that. But oh, well, well, I'll see if I can find some. But anyway, yeah. L- listen, I I have an address called Mitch Minute at AOL dot com that I use for business purposes, and so if, if folks uh-huh. could certainly send it there to me, and you know just title it Tom Worman or for Tom Worman or to the and I will be more than happy to uh, forward those over to you. Uh, unless Great! I'll give the yeah. I'll give them uh, I'll give the donor credit in, under the picture in the book. Yeah. So there you go. So yeah. send that stuff over to Mitch Minute at AOL dot com, and I'll get them over to Tom. But uh, let let me ask you this: before we start talking about Striper and and L.A. Guns and Cheap Trick and Motley Crue and Doc and all these bands that you made these. Was there any band in the 80s or in the 70s that you really wanted to produce and for whatever reason it didn't work out because they weren't on your label? I mean, I'm looking at, you know, Brian Adams or Foreigner or Journey or Styx or, you know, some of these big bands. Yeah. Were there any of those that you said, oh, I, I have an idea. I, boy, I could just. What's the one band you never got to produce that you were just like, oh, I, we could have been such a good team? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because if the band is that good, so so good that I really ached to produce them, they probably didn't need a producer that much. Um, Foreigner interviewed me at one point, and uh, I did not get the gig. Um, I would say, the, you know, it's, it's funny, but I uh, I always wanted to uh, work with with the Eagles uh, because I'm not a rock I'm not a heavy metal guy I'm not a, a really a hard rock guy I'm a power pop guy and I'm uh, an acoustic um, guitar um, harmonies uh, kind of a Crosby Stills Nash guy um, so you can hear some of that in some of that influence in 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 many of the hard rock records that I did um more more like power pop but uh, the, the who you know that would have been a a major wet dream um being able to produce the who uh, um you know but 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 they did like Glenn Johns who did produce the who their 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 seminal album their best albums um he was my uh role model you know, I remember listening to Who's Next uh, and and looking at the back and saying, you know, this is exactly what I should be doing. This is what I want to do. 
Um, and and uh, he, you know, he made Who's Next, and he made the Eagles' first album. And, and and how could they be more different? And he he was brilliant at both. So I said, you know, I want to be a producer. But the Who were one of my biggest influences musically. So so, so that that was sort of the inspiration to be a producer. Were you? Did you did you start off being a guitarist or a drummer and it just wasn't working? You couldn't get the bands together, and so because because that's my story. I mean, I couldn't play an instrument, and I said, "Well, I want to be part of this, yeah. but how am I going to do that?" Well, I'll write about it, or and then I'll talk about. It. Was yeah. that sort of no, your I, okay? Yeah, I I had a folk group in um, in high school. I taught myself how to play the guitar. I listened to Josh White a lot. Um, I listened to Bo Diddley a ton. And uh, I fig- fiddled around with a few tunings. And then when I got to college, I had a, um, a, a really great band called The Walkers. And um, we played all over the Northeast. And we actually had an offer from uh, Nat Weiss to audition for Brian Epstein, which I turned down. Um, because the, the Vietnam War was raging and if we had gone on tour if we had made a hit and gone on tour we would have been drafted and sent overseas probably we were in school so um i politely declined uh which was a kind of a short-sighted thing to do uh and then and then uh after that i i you know i I got an mba i went into advertising and i hated it so i wrote a letter to clive davis and we started talking and that was that was my you know my escape to rock and roll wow what a, what what an interesting uh, path because so, so i mean if if the united states had not been at war you might have been the next a rock star <laughs> wow isn't that amazing now but but on the other end though as a producer though you probably had a more dignified and long-lasting career because you got a chance to work with all these different artists and do all these different kind of songs and 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 different kind of music whereas you know if you're acdc if you don't make an acdc album fans go oh well yeah well yes yes but but mainly i you know i i'm a, a much more conservative guy um, than w- were my artists, and um, I had a family, and I have three children, now middle-aged adults, and um, oh my, ge- I have a guest who's arriving. Um, I'm going to have to uh, take a, m- a few minutes. I'm so sorry. I didn't expect this. No worries. Uh, but these are paying guests who are arriving. So, yeah. So go uh, deal with that, and 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 we'll we'll throw in a a, a courtesy plug. There, go head over to stonoverfarm.com because he has a bed and breakfast, and I have stayed at it. It is absolutely luxurious. So, so go take care of your guests. We will reconvene in a few minutes. But folks, uh, stonoverfarms.com. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a, uh, well, a mitigated thank you to uh, Tom Worman, because we are going to get back to him. But first, we are going to get over to Tony Lombardi Jr. talking about Chris Cat One, the Peter Chris solo album from 1994. He's going to tell us a quick story of how, in fact, his dad had gotten Peter to do the album. Um, 
Alan, I know you're there and I know you're listening to this Kiss stuff and you're thinking, oh, good God, what a great band. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a chance to put you, to have some input. Big fan of Peter Chris, I'm imagining. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I was taking a nap there. I heard the word Kiss and I thought it was time for me to plump up a pillow and take a nap. Oh, I'm telling you, but... Uh, <laughs> But, 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 by the way, KISS is doing that The End of the Road tour. They are coming to Montreal in March, and they are also coming to Montreal on August 16th, 2019. And I just want to, yeah. Why do, why do I have a sense that when you say End of the Road and refer to KISS, that immediately the image that comes into my mind is they're on a circular road? Well, that's fine. That's fine. It's a, it's, <laughs> it's a sort of a, listen, I, I'm glad that all these bands continue, but, uh, they are here August 16th, 19, uh, 2019, and uh, my first ever, ever show, the, the one that got all this stuff started, was on August 6th, 1979 at the Montreal Forum. So almost 40 years to the day, really 10 days apart, KISS will be back in Montreal finishing where it all began or where it all started for me. So I, I just think that's that's kind of amazing. I mean, whether you like KISS or not, the fact that my first show was 40 years ago and KISS is going to show up almost to the day 40 years later, uh, that's actually pretty amazing. I mean, you have to give them some credit for the fact that they're still doing it and, and there is a chance for somebody like me to see them almost 40 years to the day, right? I mean, give, right, give me something. Give me something. That That sure says something. Yes, it's you, and you sure know something when you say that. Uh, here is <laughs> from Tony Nicole, Tony Records, uh, home of Chris Cat One, uh, an album that also features a guitar work by Ace Frehley. Here is the one, the only, Tony Lombardi Jr. We are speaking with Tony Lombardi Jr. Uh, good day, Tony. Pleasure to speak with you. Good day to you. And, of course, uh, the reason we're talking is because you have some involvement in the Peter Chris Chris Cat One album. Now, it was your dad, Tony Lombardi Sr., who had originally put this out on Tony Nicole Tony Records back in 1994. Um, talk to me about if – do you have any stories of that time and how that album sort of came together? Yeah, actually, uh, you know, at that time – Tony Nicole, Tony Records had uh, Joey C. Jones and the Glory Hound signed to the label at that time. And uh, Adam Hamilton, who uh, now is with L.A. Guns and, and a few other, you know, producing uh, yeah. projects and whatnot. Uh, and a personal so, friend. Uh, great guy. Yeah, absolutely. He's a great guy. So uh, <clears throat> he had found a, uh, an ad in the magazine and uh, Peter was looking for a label. So uh, my, my dad at that time talked to uh, Peter. Uh, Peter came over to Tony, uh, Tony Nicole, Tony records. And then, uh, they did the 94 release, uh, with cat one. And, uh, that, I think that was August 16th. So, uh, 1995, uh, <clears throat> there was a little bit of a discrepancy between Peter and, uh, our label. And then that's when the, uh, kiss reunion tour came about. So, uh, Peter jumped on, uh, the kiss reunion tour. And then for the last, uh, 24 years here, um, the album's kind of been dead. So in 2018, is when I came into play and I decided that, uh, you know, there was no digital, no digital downloads, no uh, digital streaming and whatnot, 94. And, uh, it was never really released on vinyl. Um, it didn't have a, uh, distribution, uh, deal in Japan or Europe. So that's where we've, uh, we've been involving the, you know, count one of our last year here. We got it on, uh, all digital platforms 
Um, we've now done, uh, did a distribution deal with Avalon records in Japan. Uh, we're in the process here of putting together a digital release with rock candy records in Europe. And then, uh, here in 2019, we're going to go ahead and release it in uh, vinyl. Oh, wow. That's great. Now here's the fun right. thing about that is I picked up the, the new, uh, I guess it was end of 2018 version of, of it from Japan. And it comes like in a miniature LP kind of thing, a kind of, you know, a cardboard thing. It's great. And right. it sounds great. Um, the other thing I've always enjoyed about this album was the artwork. I, I thought, especially at the time, to have half makeup, half face was was brilliant. Is that something that these days is causing concern in terms of, you know, copyright or or imagery imagery with the Kiss Camp? Do they, do they sort of write you and say, "Hey, wait a minute, you can't use that makeup"? Or no. So the the situation with that came about. That was actually Peter's idea, and what he wanted to do was he wanted to tie the past with the present. So that's where, you know, the, the half-painted face represents the past to the present. Um, with the album cover and so forth, uh, the copyright belongs to Tony Nicole Tony Records. So that was actually even a, uh, a deal that was, you know, uh, put out before uh, Peter had sold the makeup and, and, and everything else. But, um, you know, the copyright infringement um, wouldn't fall into place, uh, you know, just being that the image is, is, is different enough from one another. But, uh, you know... Like I said, so with the image being on the on the uh, album, um, you know the the artwork and everything to the album uh, is copyright to uh, Tony Nicole Tony Records, so that's not an issue. Now, has Peter Chris or or his camp reached out to you since you've re-released it and got to go on those digital platforms? Are they happy that it's out there? Are they not happy that it's out there? What's what's sort of the situation with the Peter camp? You know, uh, I haven't reached out to him. He hasn't reached out to me. Um, you know, I, I do plan to uh, hopefully when we do the uh, vinyl release here um, to have him stand behind it, uh, maybe sign some copies and so forth. But at this time, uh, no, we, have, we haven't spoken. And, uh, we haven't discussed anything that's been done over the last year here with the uh, Cat One album. Okay. And, you know, the, the album has, uh, what, I think 11 tracks or something like that. Uh, yeah, the the uh, right. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Eleven tracks, correct? Right. Is there is there more sort of sitting in a vault somewhere where we could do a like for Rock Candy Records that they always they're very good about doing bonus tracks. Is there a chance that we might see right fourteen tracks? You know, fifteen tracks. Is there stuff sort of lying uh, around? It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be thirteen tracks. Actually, the uh, Japan release uh, with Avalon has two bonus tracks on there as well. So what we did was from the uh, 93 EP, there was uh, two tracks that didn't make the 94 release. And that was the cat and what you're doing. Right. So on the, uh, the new, the new uh, Japan deal there uh, is going to be uh, very similar to the rock candy uh, European release. And both of those will have the, uh, you know, number 12 is the cat. And then number 13 is what you're doing on there. Oh, that's great. Now, let, let's go over it musically back then, because I know your dad was involved, but how involved were you in terms of uh, putting the package together back in the day and and listening to the music? What what are sort of your thoughts on the album? Well, that was uh, one of the most epic childhoods uh, a kid could ask for. Um, you know, I was pretty much raised on rock and roll. Uh, so 1995, I had actually graduated high school. Uh, 1993, my father actually founded TNT records on my birthday. So the start date of the corporation of the record label actually started on my birthday. Um, we're out here in California. We had a uh, office in Encino, California. 
um, where I was pretty much head of management at that time. Uh, the day that I graduated high school, uh, my dad had actually had Peter on a uh, Bad Boys tour, and uh, Warrant was opening up for them. Wild Side, which is another band that was under Tony the Tony Records at that time, was also opening up for them. Um, so we we uh, boy we had a, we had a kick-ass time. Uh, I walked out in front of my dad's house one day, and there was a big tour bus there. And uh, next thing I know, I'm on a tour bus heading to Vegas, and that had to be one of the most uh, one of the most cool shows I've ever been to as far as uh, a concert. Um, we played at uh, UNLV Stadium out there, and uh, man, I, I just got to tell you the the crowd, the energy, um, everything behind Cat One at that time was amazing. Um, Warrant was, uh, you know, Warrant was in in one of their one of their better days at that time, I guess you would say. Um, just some really really cool shows around 1995. Um, so when when all that kind of was was going along and rolling pretty good here, then that's when uh, 1995 came about uh, for the kids convention tour and uh peter was there with my father and myself um that was actually the first time in 10 years that uh all the members of kiss were actually just under the same roof and what did what what, what came about that is is uh all the fans there at the convention center just went absolutely berserk so uh from from that point on um there was a little bit of talking once you know the, the band members and, and such and uh, that's how the 1995 MTV Unplugged came about. And uh, that was the first time that they had actually performed together in over 10 years. And uh, what's really cool about the 1995 uh, Unplugged is they used the uh, version of Beth, which is the acoustic version, uh, which is the version that uh, my label holds, holds the uh, copyright to. Yeah, which is great. So uh, just before we wrap up, talk to me about that version, uh, that, that re-recorded song, because, you know, it is one of the most epic Kiss songs ever. It is their, I think their their, their sole uh, top ten hit. Um, or maybe I was made for loving you as well. But uh, do you remember any of the any of the sessions going into that, or, or the thought behind getting him to re-record it? How how eager was he to do it, or was it something that he had to sort of be talked into? No, that was uh, that was something that was Peter's idea. Um, you know, the original version, uh, being the orchestrated version, had done very well. It was actually one of the few. Kiss singles that actually went gold. Um, bigger than that, it was the only track that uh, Peter alone was the uh, you know was was behind. So there was no other members of Kiss um, on stage at that time when Peter did that. So we wanted to take the acoustic version and we wanted to bring a little bit of life to it and uh, make it something that was still classy and smooth. So I, I think that that was done. Uh, and, and and I mean, if you really take a look at the you know the uh, the background behind all the guys on that. Um, you know, for the acoustic guitar, uh, you had Wayne Johnson and, uh, I mean, he really tore some, tore some ass on that. Um, I think that, you know, there is a little bit, uh, a little bit different version of it that I did for the digital release, which I thought that would be pretty cool. I took the Ampex 499 reels, um, and I transferred that over to, uh, digital. And, uh, if you take a look on the digital release, uh, you got Peter counting down one, two, three on there. And then if you take a look at the 94, uh, LP that's got, uh, the, you know, the, the remastered version there. And then if you take a look at the, uh, 1993 EP, that's got a, a, a version that's about 20 seconds shorter. So there's actually right now three, three best circulating you have on the Avalon, uh, the best version from uh, 1993, Chris EP. And then on the 94, uh, album, you got the original version from cat one. And then now here we got uh, in 2000, 
18 digital release. And I took that directly from the uh, Gold Ampex Masters. And uh, that's got a few extra seconds behind it. And it's, I think, really authentic in the beginning where you got Peter counting down and saying one, two, three. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a, I think it's one of the best songs in uh, rock and roll history as far as ballads go. Oh, absolutely. And and by the way, I as a long-standing Kiss fan, I did not realize that there were three different versions of it. So that's actually kind of a, a cool little thing to to from a, for me and from the collector's perspective is to go find all that stuff. And uh, right, right. I mean, I mean, the the, the ears not going to really tell the difference. It's uh, pretty much the time between the three songs, or excuse me, the three different recordings. Um, what you will notice though in the digital releases is, is you will notice some countdown at the beginning. Oh, I love, I love, I love countings like that, uh, Tony. A great pleasure. And where where can folks go find the label or find you? Or and when do we think the uh, Rock Candy version will come out? Uh, Derek over at Rock Candy is going to be uh, giving me a release date here in the next few days, actually. Uh, so possibly by the time that this airs, uh, the release right. will uh, you know will drop. And then we got uh, uh, one uh, for all digital downloads. And uh, there's some cool merchandise on there, some cool clothing apparel as well. Uh, we're shortly, we're going to be taking some pre-orders for the vinyl. Oh, that's great. Uh, Tony, an absolute pleasure today. And, uh, you know, listen, it's a, it's, it's a fun album and I, I, I love that cover. I've always, always loved that artwork. I, I don't know who had that concept, like we said, but, um, just a great, great package and, uh, nice to have it redone in 2018, now 2019. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to uh, Tony Lombardi Jr. You can, of course, get yourself Chris Cat One. I just picked up the new version from Japan that comes in a, uh, what do you call it, a mini LP sleeve, which I'm a fan of. I, I, I love the fact that it's sort of this vinyl look, but in small and actually has a CD, which is enjoyable to listen to, unlike vinyl, which is god-awful. Um, sorry, that's my opinion, uh, Alan. Is that uh, you? Don't share the opinion. You're a vinyl aficionado, right? Um, I have a handful of vinyl records, and I really, I, I used to have thousands of vinyls, um, which uh, I got rid of when I was living in Sweden in 1980. Um, so I was obviously slightly ahead of the curve and anticipating there was going to be a shift. Um, but I'd, I'd been moving around in like, at, at that period of time and packing all those boxes of records and paying for the freight and moving them around. I got to a point of going, oh, I'm done, you know, and moved to something a little, a little bit more um, mobile. Yeah. And, and Start putting things on cassette. Um, but anyway, yeah. should we not get back to, uh, to Tom? Yes, we, we, we should get back to uh, Tom's faulty towers. Yes, we should get back to Tom's. By the way, his his Stone Over Farms, uh, and we, we we plug it during the interview. So, so just I have actually stayed there a week with my wife. It is an absolutely gorgeous gorgeous property the the room or the the areas that you can rent out i mean they're they're, they're like beverly hills mansions it, it's really something spectacular to, to to be there and and of course to have you know tom Worman cook you bacon and eggs in the morning is also somewhat of a treat especially if you're a rock <laughs> fan like myself you know hey it's a bed and breakfast right and uh right 
Yeah. Now, normally when you reserve and, to, you know, to go there, you don't get to go into the main house and, and see Tom's private place. But because I know him, I had a chance to go in and that opening hallway where you sort of drop off your shoes and stuff. It's it just it strikes you because it's from for me it, right off the top. It's all the cheap trick gold and platinum records that are right there. And you just go, ah, look at that. This is real. And it really it, it turns you into a fanboy real quick. Unfor- I mean, unfortunately, but or fortunately. <laughs> but anyway, that that aside, uh, it, it, it's not the holiday in folks. It really is 18 million cuts above that. It, it's something special and unique. So if you have, you know, you want to break from life or you have a somebody special that you need a getaway, you know, go over to his to his bed and breakfast book, book it. It's 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 absolutely gorgeous. Um, you know, just anyway, there you go. Well, it sounds absolutely fantastic. Oh, it is. And fair warning, if they stay at Tom's and then think they're going to come over to my place and knock on my door, be prepared to meet a grumpy old mofo, probably with a shotgun in his hand. Yes. So so you have the uh, the uh, Tom bed and breakfast and the Alan Niven get out of get off of my lawn experience. It's fantastic. You could you can do That's both. That's perfectly expressed. <laughs> it's definitely get off my lawn. Oh, that's hilarious. And uh, and uh, by the way, uh, next week I have uh, JJ French. We're going to listen to him. Uh, this was not a setup. I didn't do Tom and then JJ. Uh, and you'll hear why I'm on the phone with uh, JJ when we get to that next week. But uh, before, or and maybe I should keep it. For, uh, I'll tell you now. Uh, JJ tells me a story of how he went over to visit somebody in the area where Tom's bed and breakfast is. And they happened to have met up in a restaurant accidentally, totally serendipitously. And uh, they almost came to blows over the fact of, hey, you did this record and Tom's... Anyway, it, it, it's a funny story, and I'll, and I'll give you more details when we do the J.J. French interview. But uh, here is part two, part two of the one, the only, Tom Worman. And we are again speaking with producer Tom Worman. And of course, that is part of what happens when you have your own business. You're going to have to take some moments. So we it may happen again during this chat, but we'll... Uh, we will see. Let's get let's let's get talking about this production stuff. Was was your first album uh, the the Robbie Falk and Bod Kentucky Gambler, or was that one of the first uh, ones, Roby? Yeah. Uh, well, no. I I kind of oversaw it and I signed them, but uh, Glenn Spreen produced that in Nashville. Um, they were ignored largely by the label because they uh, the label thought they sounded too much like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and um, so they really didn't pay much attention to them, and it wasn't that well produced. And of course, then America came on the scene and had two huge hits um, because they sounded exactly like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. So I was pretty pretty bummed by that one. So, um, but no, my first my first you know real time in in the studio doing anything was uh, Ted's first album. Ah, okay. So so let's talk about Ted's first album then. How um, free for all? 
I guess it is. No, Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent. Oh, I was the second. Second. Was the right, second. Right. Ted Nugent, Ted, Ted Nugent. Nugent. Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent, Ted Nugent, yeah. So, yeah. so talk we to me about... Talk, we, you know, we didn't talk politics. I want to make that very clear right <laughs> on the outset. <laughs> well, you know, I just interviewed Ted, uh, what, uh, four weeks ago, five weeks ago? And, yeah. uh, you know, I've interviewed Ted many times in the past, and we, we never really get talking oh, yeah. about deep, dark politics. He, he's... He's a great right. interview. All you use, all you got to do is hit record, and That's then right. and then I go mow the lawn, and then I pick up the phone, I, and he's, he's still going. It's I great. listened to I listened to that one. I heard that one. Yeah. And and the funny thing about that one is there's about 15 minutes before I started recording because I said, "Hey Ted, how's it going?" And he went off, and I said, "All right, I'm about yeah. to start recording now." And he goes, "You weren't taping any of that?" And it's like, "Well, no, those yeah. those, those were just the hello." <laughs> Anyway, uh, so right. so talk to me about Ted because we we he had the Amboy oh, yeah. Dukes, yeah. and yeah. this was him becoming a solo artist. So as a producer, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. and you tell me how it works, but I'm assuming you sit down, you meet with management, you meet with Ted, you meet with the label, and we say what we say we have to make Ted Ted, or we need to make Ted the Amboy Dukes without the other guys. What what sort of mm-hmm. the game Wasn't, plan going into it? wasn't anywhere near that much thought involved. Um, he, the, there was a guy named Lou Futterman who owned Ted's production contract. He, he owned Ted, basically. And he came in to try to shop a deal after Ted left the or dissolved the Amboy Dukes. Um, and he still had a band, so it was it was like the same thing, except that it was named Ted Nugent instead of Ted Nugent and Band. Um, so, so Lou came into my office, played me a couple of demos, told me that Ted was now available. And I basically had heard his name, but I knew nothing about him, nothing. And I had heard that uh, journey to the center of your mind. Um, not much. So, so I really wasn't that excited to hear that Ted Nugent was available. Um, however, I had a reason to go out to, um, I guess it was Chicago, and um, Lou arranged for Ted to play a, 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 a show at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And uh, I went. I was delighted. Went backstage. We talked. Um, there was, you know, uh, he was ready to go. Um, I brought my boss out to see him play another gig at the... Uh, I think it was the um, Lansing Ice Arena, Lansing, Michigan. And, you know, Lou took him into the studio. I went into the studio with him to basically protect my investment because I didn't think Lou knew much about rock and roll. And Ted and I really saw eye to eye about the kind of record he wanted to make. There was no label input we, 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 you know, we just made the record, and I contributed so much in the studio that uh, Lou, uh, to his credit, gave me uh, co-producer credit on the album, and um, that was really nice of him. The album went platinum almost immediately, and I was bang, I was a producer. You know, that's the way it works in the in the record business. It's like abracadabra. 
yeah, well, producer. well, certainly back in those days it did. Uh, just talk yeah. to me then about, about Ted in terms of a musician, because we, we know in 2018, 2019, we talk about the politics and all that, but peel that layer of that onion away, there is still a yeah. fantastic guitarist and a great songwriter, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, w- yep. He, uh, he was in his prime, I think, then, and... Uh, the deal about Ted was that it's not so much that you would produce a, a Ted Nugent record, you would be quality control because Ted literally knew every note that he wanted each musician to play in the band. So in the studio, he would say, no, 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 play this, do that, don't play that way. I mean, he would produce each guy when it when it came time for him to put you know to to record his instrument um there's no question that you know ted was was the you know the musical director really um i really did much more in terms of mixing uh it was the first time i had a chance to mix uh i ever did mix and so the first song i ever mixed was stranglehold what a great thing that was. I really had a lot of fun. Um, but Ted knew, Ted was totally buttoned down. Totally. Um, he, he, no fooling around, no drugs, no alcohol. Get in, work, get out. I think the album cost us about $30,000. And that was it. And what was it like working with Derek St. Holmes? Because when you, when you listen to Stranglehold, everybody goes, that's a great Ted song, and Ted does great singing it. And then people go, well, well, no, wait a minute. Uh, Derek's saying yeah. that. And it, and folks are right. like, wait, wait, what? Derek's? Because uh, he's, he's sort of an unsung hero in the whole Ted Nugent story as well, right? Yeah, yeah. He's a, he was a really good rhythm guitarist, did some lead work, um, wrote Hey Baby, um, and and he uh, he was a great singer, great front man, and uh, Ted was not that great a singer. He had attitude, but um, Derek was great, and Derek was funny, uh, a really good guy. We got along very well, and I really enjoyed working with him. Um, you know, we would we would sneak out. Uh, the, uh, some some of the let's see Rob the, the 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 bass player and Derek and and I would you know sneak out and and smoke some weed um, we we had to we had to you know do it on the sly um, so uh, we we got along really well and uh, I enjoyed it you know Derek went to jail uh, overnight once um, I think uh, I don't know he was misbehaving in Atlanta and they, they put him in jail and Lou Futterman, the, who was, you know, who was always there with us. Um, he, he, he got very, very angry and he said, I've had it with Derek. I've had it. Um, I want to continue working. And Tom, do you know any singers that we can get in here and keep working? I'll teach him a lesson. So I called meatloaf and, (laughs) and meat, Meat got on a plane and flew down to Atlanta. I don't think too many people un- realize that Meatloaf sang four songs on the Free For All album. That's great. But 
Yeah, but that but that's the deal. Um, yeah, Derek was great. Um, Cliff was uh, was, was know, he was he was a pretty serious guy, uh, English guy. He was in a band called If. Um, yep. No. Let me. There are so many albums, so I'm going to start moving moving back and forth between them. But I, I will finish here on the TED story. A um, couple yeah. of years later, you, you put out Cat Scratch Fever, and of course the song yeah. Cat Scratch Fever, and, and that riff, and, and just one of those songs that when you put a collection of the '70s together, it has to be on there. What was that one like the first time you hear it, and you come in with the scratch track and the and the whatever scratch vocals and and you hear that, dun, 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 like, yeah. does yeah. the hair stand well, up on the back of your neck? Well, the first time I heard it wasn't wasn't on tape. It was live. Um, I was at a show, can't remember exactly where it was, but uh, Ted introduced the song. He said, here's a new song we've been doing. And, uh, and the first time I heard it, I, I, right after the show, I called uh, my boss and I said, Ted wrote a hit single. And... And that was it, you know. And of course, every time I I was getting a, a sound on a guitar player after Cat Scratch Fever was was recorded, no matter who I was working with, they would play that lick. And I'm in the control room, they're in the studio, and they would they would play that lick and and laugh. You know, <laughs> it's very popular that lick. It's it's incredible. Yeah, I'm sorry. Ted, Ted had really, really catchy um, guitar rhythm guitar licks, uh, and and I kind of made all my that was the, the the anchor. The most important thing in almost every record I made was a rhythm guitar hook um, that you know that that would drive the song. Um, you know, I was a rhythm guitarist. I didn't play. I didn't play lead. After, after a certain point, there were no rhythm guitarists anymore. Everyone was a lead guitarist. But, you know, the same way Pete Townsend was a brilliant rhythm guitarist, um, Ted was too. Yeah. You know. Oh, absolutely. So let, let me move you back and forth between uh, eras and between bands and between styles. Some of your greatest hits, as we know, we've talked about them, Molly Crew and Poison and Ted – but you also have some of these great misses, these bands that should have been big and weren't big. So I'll take you to 1990, uh, Love, Hate, Blackout in the Red Room. One of the greatest yeah. albums to come out that year. I, I remember going into a store in Montreal and, and the, you know, the record company, the record store back, back in those days. For, for, folks don't understand that there was a symbiotic relationship between the, the store clerk and, and the customer at record stores. They would they would walk in and say, oh, hey, Mitch, I know what kind of music you like. And they recommended this love and hate. I had never heard of them, didn't know who they were. So I bought it completely on blind faith because. That's what we did back then, and uh, put it on an absolutely phenomenal album. One of the greatest things, like I said, of the 90s. Talk to me about working with them, working with Jizzy Pearl, and, and why did that album not become the next, you know, black album? Why did it not become the next greatest thing? Because all the ingredients are there. I, you know, I, they were great players. Uh, could have been the songs. I, I don't know. One of the problems was that uh columbia they, they were on the columbia label they they 
spent most of the money that they would have spent on promotion uh, on the advance. I think they gave the band eight hundred thousand dollars. It was huge. Um, I I found the band, and then I was I was not working for a label, and I I, I think to the best of my recollection, um, I think I took them to. Um, I can't remember his name, but anyway, he was the head of A&R at Columbia on the West Coast. And he signed them without, you know, I was going to sign them to my production company. It was an independent production company. And instead, he signed them. And I was really pissed. Um, but that's the way it happened. And he gave them this, this you know, uh, boatload of money. And and I think that that was basically uh, what prevented them from supporting the band properly um, after the record came out. So I loved. Um, why do you think they call it dope? Always love that song. That's a, I guess yeah. I put that on the on on the disc, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. So, well, let me have a look here. You 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 gave out to, to friends and family years ago a, a collection, a retrospective collection, two CDs called "The Hits and the Misses." And uh, which one? Yes, it is. Why do you think they call it dope on there? It, it is a great a great track. So, just quickly on that though, the, was the advance so much and so big that they just sort of got caught in this recoupment hell, and they just I couldn't think, never dig out of it? I I think so. Uh, you know. I never got involved in, in, in the business end, but I know that they gave them a, wild, a huge advance that was unusual because they had high hopes for the band. They really did. Um, another, so, you know, one of a handful of disappointments. Um, most everything that's on that, that Mrs. CD was, was a disappointment in that I thought everything on there would do much better. Yeah. So, so let me ask you about this though. Uh, from from the Ted Nugent in 75 to this in 1990, how had your production style or your ear for the records changed if at all? You know, were you were you working oh. more for radio? Were you working more for just how did how did you sort of move in those 15 years? I I always thought it was my my job to make hits, hits with with a band, get them on the radio. Um, this this is why um, several of the bands I worked with uh, have said, you know, in retrospect, twenty years later, well, we wish it had been harder. We wish it, you know, it was too pop. Meanwhile, they sold a gazillion records because they had a hit single that got them on the radio, and that generated millions of album sales. And that's what I thought that my job was in, in order to establish them at radio. So, um, you know, uh, I would do I would make hit singles with bands that you would not expect a hit single from. Um, and 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 that and that would do it. But then they then they uh, and they loved me uh, for it then, and then they then they had other things to say twenty years later. It's well, like, and and in fact, well, two of yeah, them, yeah. two of them even bothered to re-record albums in their yeah, entirety. 
Cheap Trick and Twisted yeah. Sister. Cheap Trick did a Steve yeah. Albini produced in color, yeah. which has yet yeah. to be released, by the way, goes to show. Oh, yeah. And well, Twisted Sister, who, of course, had Stay Hungry, tried with Still Hungry, and... <sighs> yeah, I, I love the... I 25,000, uh, you know, as compared to... to I think uh, Stay Hungry has probably sold 7 million by now. And it goes to show also the fact that that maybe having a little, and I don't mean it in a disparaging way, but to have a little sugary, sweet kind of, you know, crust to that is what fans want. Yeah, I I have no idea what happened with, uh, no idea what the deal is with with D. Snyder. He was Doctor Jekyll, and then he was Mister Hyde. As soon as he walked out of the studio and the record was done, he was Mr. Hyde. He was, uh, you know, friendly, cooperative, glad-handing, back-slapping, no problem, we're going to do this. And then as soon as he walked out of the studio, in his book he wrote, I think Tom Worman single-handedly destroyed that album. Now, now, you know, when you've sold over five million albums, how do you say something like that? Even, you know, maybe he was a purist. Maybe he wanted some different kind of sound. But that, believe me, you know, at that time, the way that band played live, that was the right record to to make. So I I I, I don't understand. He 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 just you know completely trashed uh the record and as it as it flew off the shelves <laughs> listen it's baffling to me i love d uh i have a good relationship with d i love twisted sister but if somebody said to me you have to have one album and everything else has to be burnt in a in a bonfire uh, well stay hungry is the one that you want to keep not still hungry not come out and play not you can't stop it is the one album right. So, oh, yeah. so, and and yeah. that's not to be nasty. It's just that's the truth. And I think ninety nine percent of the fans listening today are going to say, "Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right, Mitch." That's the so no. It's it's a great album. Let, let, but let's go over here to Cheap Trick. So you, so you do this stuff yeah. with uh, Ted Nugent, and of course Cheap Trick has been working with Jack Douglas, and their first album is more of this sort of punky, darky kind of album. You come into in color yeah. and you brighten it up. You you add some color to it, as it were. Um, what was that like in terms of the band? Did they come in with this? We're a punk band, and we've got you know, Daddy wants to stay in high school. Blah blah. blah and these darker sort of songs about drugs and all kinds of weird stuff. And and did you probably, change? Yeah. It was, you know, it, it was similar to the, to the Twisted Sister situation because the band was much you know, uh, gnarlier and louder and harder on stage than it was, than I, you know, represented them in, in the studio. But I don't think, you know, I don't think like Alf Wiedersehen is wimpy. I don't think, um, we're not going to take it as wimpy, but, uh, who knows? The, the the cheap trick was really, really uh, incredibly loud when when I when I first saw them. I mean, I had to go out of the club and stand by the front door in order to hear the songs 
better because um, inside was just um, I don't know it, it was just almost impossible to distinguish one note from the other um, but but um, you know I made the record that I that that I thought was best for for them I made the songs the way I heard them um, in terms of you know production approach. I learned that certain things worked over the 20 years. And, um, you know, I'm sure many producers would say, well, I just, um, I I apply myself according to, uh, to the particular band. I want to serve the band. I'm just here to help the band realize its musical vision. But every producer has his tricks and his favorite things to do. And, you know, I had, I did all the percussion. Um, I liked harmonies, vocal harmonies. I do some of that. I do. I was really um, wild about guitar fills between verses, and um, I <clears throat> love the Hammond B3 organ. There, there are things that I found that worked, and I would apply them to more than one album. Um, of course, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't make each band sound the same as another band, but, you know, y- you don't just wipe the slate clean uh, when you're doing your 30th album, say. Uh, you say, well, gee, this sounds like, uh, I mean, for for example, Surrender has that, uh, that synth, uh, synthesizer pattern that, uh, I stole from the Who's Baba O'Reilly, and uh, it also appears on Dream Police, the exact same one as the, on, on the on the song. Um, nobody called me on it, but it worked for both. So it worked. You know, I I loved it on Surrender, and I and I I said, gee, you know, it sounds like this might work here too. So. That's the deal. Well, I never noticed, and it sounds great. So let me ask you, when you're working for these, uh, when you're working for the band, you're working with Cheap Trick or Molly Crew, whoever, is your primary function to to deliver what the band wants, or how tight were you with the label where you were sending them rough mixes and stuff, and the label coming back Mm -hmm. saying, listen, you got to do something. So so who was your your client, basically? Yeah, nobody did that. Okay. We uh, uh, the label wouldn't get you know they'd come down maybe we'd put on a little dog and pony show, play them some roughs, but they never said we don't like this. It should be more this or you know we want this band to be blah. It was left up to us. Period. And um, they may have done that in in, in other places, but really I was the A and R man in charge of the project at CBS at Epic. And so, and I was the producer. So, you know, where Kalodner might've gone down to, uh, to a studio, um, and, and said, I don't, I don't like, he was very opinionated and very smart and very good with music. Um, and, 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 uh, it was natural for him to go down to the studio, listen to something and give his opinion and, uh, and expect bands, and producers to change their approach if he wanted them to. That didn't happen really with, with us, with me. 
So, the, you know, I'd do the album, I'd rehearse the band, I'd go in, I'd do the album, I'd mix it, and then I would have somebody in the band approve the mixes, and then I would deliver, I'd master it and deliver it to the label. So that was it. Was it. Um, you know, Cheap Trick has said that they're not happy with In Color, and like we said, they did the Steve Albini thing, yeah. but yet they come back to you for Heaven Tonight, they come back to you for Dream Police, and yeah. for, for most fans... Those three albums, in color, heaven, those are the three people that those are the three albums that folks say that's classic cheap yeah. trick. That's cheap trick. So why did they come back to you if they had <laughs> such a horrible experience on in color and it was too lo- which is yeah. total nonsense because it's such Good a question. such a great album in Southern Girls. I mean, come on, does it get any better than Southern Girls? Honestly, or yeah, big or big eyes. Good. It's a good question, really. I I, uh, I asked it myself. I mean, they hire me, they could fire me. It's um, you know, it's not not a problem. Um, that's that's just it, it. It you know, they there are reasons unknown to me why bands will love you at the time, and then twenty years later. You know, uh, they'll they'll say uh, they'll say not nice things about you. About well, he didn't really get our you know, and he wasn't paying attention, and and uh, you know, he he made this to that and and whatever. It's um, they just don't. Um, it's all about them, you know. Uh, I thought perhaps um, the reason that D. Snyder said what he said was maybe because he had worked hard to build this band over, I don't know, seven or 10 years when I got to them. And, um, it was the, the head of Atlantic records who called me and said, I want you to do this record. I don't know if the band was into it, you know, using me. And so bang, I come along, make a huge album. And D says, this, this guy's getting all the credit for my hard work, and so that that may that may have been, you know, have had something to do something with to the do fact that. that they trash talk you uh, later on. But let, hey, let me let me jump know. to a, another era here because I'm going to go back and forth yeah. between the '70s and '90s and all. Um, Steelheart, uh, Tangled yeah. in Rains, oh. 1992, uh, Miljenko or Millie, as I call him, and I speak to Millie on the phone. In fact, I spoke to him just yesterday. Um, great band, great vocalist, and then there was that accident, I believe, out in Denver, and their career was cut short. Um, talk to me about working with them and being in the 90s and having this massive sound. I mean, right? I don't, you know. Honestly, Mitch, I don't remember much at all about that about that album except from you know for Mike's voice. Um, and I use you know I used him on rocks on the movie Rockstar. Yep. Uh, he was the only one who could get up who could get that high. I've never heard a singer go that high. Um, I don't I don't forget. Uh, you know, it, it's not that I can't recall much about that album because, you know. I was I was partying too much. Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, serious about making <laughs> making all the records I made in the '90s. But I, you know, I just don't I just don't remember 
that much about working with Steelheart. If I if I went back to the album and listened to it again, um, I could probably tell but, you a few things. But, but they certainly just, should have I, been bigger than than they were, right? I mean, they, their their career was cut in the prime. They had the songs. They just they just couldn't work after after that accident. I I don't remember what was the accident. It was at a show, and I believe they were opening for my brain is going to probably Great White or something. And he went to climb up. Uh, oh on, yeah, and he fell, right? And he fell, and it, and it basically cracked open his his skull, and and oh they, my, right? And they and they were done. But okay, so let me let me let, let me stay in the eight, in the nineties then, since we didn't get a lot on Steelheart, but uh, Striper, yeah. you did against the oh, law. Yeah. Now here is Michael Sweet in the band. Completely yeah. rejecting what they were. Out goes the yellow and the, you know the yellow and black. In comes the purple yeah. and the whatever. Out goes the songs about. Um, and and they have uh, talked negatively about this album, but now, but not because of the production, but because it it just wasn't who they who the band is. So it's not it wasn't it's who not, they were right. right. So it's not against you. It's against the fact that they changed their image and there was all kinds of stuff going on in their life and so on and so forth. But. Yeah. What was that project like for you? Because here you have a band that that you know in their videos are, are seen throwing out Bibles into the audience, and it's very it's a Christian rock, and they have this thing, and they've got this Bumblebee outfit, and I'm not the first to say that. It's not t- to be disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was your walking orders in on that one about? We need to be Striper 2.0. No, they just wanted to make a normal album. They didn't want to, you know actively go in a dark direction. They just didn't want it to be a a Christian music album. So uh, I think they wanted to be a a rock band, you know, a harder rock band. Um, I loved uh, working with them. They were were all really nice guys. uh, one of the nicest bands I, I ever worked with, and, and Michael was especially uh, good, and, and uh, uh, every one of them, they, they, they were great. I got along with them so well, and it was so easy to make the record. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it did okay, but obviously it wasn't a huge hit. No, and it was the changing times. It, it must have been hard to take a Christian band or a band like Striper in 1990 as MTV and as the scene started moving away from that stuff and try to keep them relevant. But okay, yeah. let me let me get to the big one here for me. Uh, okay. The absolute best Motley Crue album, and, and, and folks can argue with me all day long, but they're wrong. It is Shout at the Devil. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You can tell me that it's Doctor Feelgood, but but it's 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 Doctor it's 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 shout at the devil, you know. Well, yeah, um, you're right. I mean, the the fans uh, always the the fans love that album, and I think that's probably they voted their, their favorite. But um, for for me, you know, it. I'm I'm. More, I'm partial to uh, Dream Police, um, only because of Dream Police and Wildside. Um, I think this, you know, it's it. It was hard and it was dark and it was bottomy. Um, shout, shout was, um, 
you know, and it, it had rough edges. Uh, but it doesn't sound so good to me. Uh, mixed guitar doesn't sound very good, and the way it sounded late, later. Um, Nicky wasn't as good a musician as he developed into later. Um, they, they, I don't know. It just wasn't. It wasn't quite as interesting. But it was more natural. It was more, uh, mo- you know, motley live. Than, than were either of the following two albums because there was much more production. You know, I did more stuff. Now, and, you- and Tommy really loved to experiment too. I mean, a lot of the stuff on, on uh, Dream Police. Uh, on I Dream Police? Um, on Girls, Girls, Girls. On, on um, Girls, 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 right. sorry. Uh, was, um, it's funny because those are, you know, both third albums from groups that I really liked. But. Um, a lot of that stuff was kind of experimental, you know, especially on Wild Side. Uh, well, so, Wild well, Side so is arguably means, one of their greatest songs, but 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 Shout at yeah. the Devil is. is <laughs> t- yeah. t- no, um, I think Wild Side is re- is truly a. Uh, I don't know. That does it for me. Uh, you know, when when um, when the Bob Rock album came out, um, I thought. Uh, Kickstart My Heart was a, was a brilliant song, brilliant production. I, I feel the same way about Wild Side, although it's, it was too long to be a, you know, to be a hit. And the subject matter was a little bit, you know, unacceptable, probably at radio. I don't know. But but anyway, it, it was produced. It was produced. N- not it, Shout of the Devil was recorded you know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of of um, uh, you know uh, arrangement, rearrangement, or um, sweetening, or you know things that we added to the four guys. So that was it. Let me ask you about about some of the the, the trickery or or the behind the scenes stuff on Shout. You had Richard Page come in, who of course uh, had uh, broken wings with Mister Mister and Kiri and all yeah. that. He gave an yeah. interview to the Los Angeles Times saying that he absolutely hated yeah. that right. album because of the uh, imagery and the, the, the devil worship or whatever. Um, what was that like having Richard come in? And, and did you have to use a lot of additional musicians on a lot? Of, I mean, were there a lot of ghost musicians on some of these greatest albums or? No. Okay. No. I never used a musician that I didn't credit. And I used, in, my, in 52 albums, I used two guest guitar players, one guest bass player, and one guest harmonica player. Um, they, they all got credit, and they all, and they all played on either one or maybe two or three songs on one album. Now I I had hired keyboard players and hired singers, but they weren't in the band. I didn't I didn't substitute anybody. In, on the Poison album, for instance, I brought in a harmonica player. You know, to to you know, because Brett was a decent harmonica player, but I wanted something a little more distinctive. So I brought in Willie Nelson's harmonica player, um, and. He gets credit. It's not a ghost, 
You know, there's nobody. It's not like in the in the 50s and 60s, the Wrecking Crew. You know, it's not like oh, this band played the entire album, and we're not going to tell you. You know, the the Beach Boys. Uh, you know, or the Birds, or or whatever. Well, well, let me ask you about um, like because Bob like Ezrin, that. Bob Ezrin had his guys. You know, you look at almost any Bob Ezrin produced album, and at some point you'll figure out. Oh, look, Dick Wagner's there. Oh, look, Steve Hunter's there. And those stories come out 30 years after, you know, huh. right? Right? Because, no, I, I mean, Dick, Dick and Steve are on, on Kiss Destroyer. They're on Alice Cooper. They're on uh, Aerosmith. Huh. Uh, of course, the Aerosmith wasn't uh, Bob. But, but did you have uh, some go-to guys that you sort of got in to the studio for every key- album? Yeah. Keyboard guys, yeah. Yeah. There were there were two guys and uh, that that played most of the keyboards on all the albums that I put keyboards on, and there were two or three guys who did most of the backing vocals and harmonies. Um, Tom Kelly, right, who wrote like a virgin, and 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 others. He was a good buddy of mine and. We played a lot of golf together, <laughs> but he was a great musician and a great singer. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd figure out harmonies together and he was a real great contributor. And then Jay Winding, and I can't, you know, I, I can't even remember some of the names. Uh, of, John Perdell. Well, John was a, was a, an, an engineer and a producer uh, later on with uh, Dwayne Barron, my engineer, um, they were like a team, you know? And in fact, they produced half of, um, what was the name of it? Livewire? No, not Livewire. Yeah. The one after Blow My Fuse, the Kicks album. And they, and they produced some songs on the LA Guns record. But no, John was a, um, he would sing occasionally. I used him a lot to go out and do a model vocal track for Vince. Um, so, so he, you know, he, he would listen to it and, and try to reproduce what John did. Yeah. And now, I, it was I, easier. I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just going to, I'm going to throw in just real quick here with, with Tom Kelly for folks who don't know, he, he was on the, the shout at the devil album doing the background vocals, but he wrote true colors that Cindy Lauper recorded. Mm-hmm. He wrote Alone, right. that Hart recorded. I took South by the Divinals, like you mentioned, uh, Like a Virgin, so emotional by yeah. Whitney. I mean, it's amazing when you look at Tom and you look at Richard Page and all the stuff they've done. Of course, Richard, you know, doing the Ringo Starr All-Star. And, you, and you're like, wow, they were just these two dudes on a Motley Crue record, and yet these two dudes ended up being some of the most successful... You know, yeah. writers and and other other words. It's it's amazing. That, that that's what I find amazing. Now, um, one time, would, by the way, yeah, by the way, I just want to say that I did answer Richard Page in a letter. I think um, I I don't remember how I did, but I wasn't real happy with uh, with that because I thought it was fairly hypocritical. You know. He was happy to come in. He was happy to take the money, and then and then he he you know goes, he finishes the session and goes out and 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 says how horrible uh, it was to do that, and it wasn't. It just wasn't. 
he maybe he felt you know guilty in the eyes of God. We, we really don't know, but uh, I didn't like I didn't like that at all. So go go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, and and it's just an interesting story, and you can folks can find it online. It came out in the L.A. Times like ten years ago or twenty years ago. Right. It's it's it's, it's findable. Um, and, and, and we'll start wrapping up here soon, but I just, I just want to get over, I want to get to a few things. You had mentioned to me once before that you had a little trick in the studio that, uh, the least favorite song of yours on any album would oh, be yeah. the before last track on side two. Um, for yeah, folks the turkey that, slot, the turkey slot. So, so for folks that haven't heard us have private conversations about this which is nobody uh talk to me about the turkey slot and and was that one of many tricks or one of many little sort of things you did or was that sort of the only little sort of you know well you know it's not a trick it's 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 a self, kind of a self-defense move because you i just didn't want the listener to leave his album listening experience with a with a bad song so i always put a pretty good song at the end in my opinion at the end of the record at the end of side two but i think probably the most forgettable place in in an album's song sequence is next to last you've heard all the good stuff by the time you get to the next to last cut on side two so, um, you know, if you have to have that song, if you have to have a, a bad song, that's where it goes. Or a song that was just, you know, didn't have that much going for it. Well, okay, since we're talking about Shout at the Devil, what is wrong with 10 Seconds to Love? Because it is in the turkey slot. Yeah, well, as far <laughs> as I was concerned, it wasn't one of the better songs. That's all. You know, I, I just didn't think it was that great. And... By the way, as with all mixes of songs, the band signed off on the sequence and the band signed off on the mixes. So, you know, when if they want to complain later, don't look at me. You know, but, uh, you, but, uh, you I love 10 it. Seconds to Love. That's such a great song. So as we start <laughs> wrapping up, let me ask you about two bands that sort of were a little different in terms of uh, of maybe prowess, but Poison, Open Up and Say Aw. Uh, and of course, uh-huh. the turkey slot there is is the Kenny Loggins, uh, Messina, Your Mama Don't Dance. But what was that like for you? Because look what the cat dragged in, which I think is one of the, the greatest debut albums in, in the glam era. Uh, yeah. great album not you know it was done I think the they say it was done in two weeks or 12 hours or whatever it was now they have you uh, what was your perception going in working with that band where you're like oh here are some pretty boys or were you like okay now we they, they've got some chops because they have these singles like, like what was that like working with Poison because you gotta love Brett and you gotta love Ricky Rocket. I mean, they're 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 exceptionally nice guys, and and man, yeah. they're dedicated to their craft. Holy Christ, they're dedicated to their oh, yeah. craft. Yeah. Well, I I thought they were. Uh, we we sat down for lunch. Uh, somebody arranged a lunch because Tom Wally wanted me to produce to produce them. He was a capital A and R guy then, and I sat next to CC and. Uh, I found them very entertaining, <laughs> and and they, they were smart guys. 
they were smart guys and they were not um they were natural they didn't try to be people that they weren't they didn't try to be rock stars they were they were who they were they weren't great musicians um, nobody was playing up to the caliber that I really wanted them to play. Probably Bobby was the was the best musician in the band in terms of uh, of instrument playing. But um, I liked them. They had a couple of good songs. Um, they had obviously a big uh, a, a big first album. And I said, okay, I'll you know I'll do the record. And then in rehearsal. Um, I loaned Brett my six-string guitar, which I had brought, and he said, "I, you know, he said I have a song I, I want to play for you." And, and I gave him my guitar, and he played every rose. And uh, you know, I said, "Well, there, there you go. There's our single. Now let's work on the rest of the, you know, we'll work on the rest of the album." The, um, by the way, the uh, your mama don't dance, which I'm surprised to actually hear was in the turkey slot. Uh, was one of four top ten singles on on that album. Yes, so it's a, it's a great album. You know, it's you it's, know. but it is it is but I'm, it is track nine out of ten. <laughs> yeah, you got me. <laughs> but but of course they they weren't they weren't uh, A and B back then really. We had got to the CD, so maybe it changed things. Um, L.A. Guns, Cocked and Loaded, great album, great band. I, again, I spoke to Phil just yesterday. He sent me uh, demos of their new album that comes out in March of 2019 called The Devil You Don't Know. Um, wow. There's still a band going. still going. There's a band mm. that shoulda, coulda, woulda, and yet <clears throat> something always got in their way. And, and, was it was it band attitude? Was it just the songs were just that mm, little bit and then you can't of course see how my fingers but was it just that little bit from being what was wrong with I, la guns to not get to that next level because they're great i musicians. can't answer i you know, i can't answer that um i i don't know if i had you know spent more time with them done more albums um i'm i might have i might be able to tell you but you know, sometimes all the stars just don't line up properly for a band. You need everything to go right in order to have a hit record. I don't know. I don't know. So so then let me ask you this about Poison then, because you said that musically they weren't where you wanted them to be, and yet their success cannot be denied. It, it, right. Right. I mean, sometimes it's more it's 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 not just about how well you can play your guitar, because we've all seen those guys who can do right. a wank fest on guitar and play a million notes. What yep. was it about? What is it about a band that gets them to the is it really sort of the everything? It's it's the look. It's the ability to give interviews. It's the ability to, to put on a good sh like sort of what is the perfect storm if you had to sort of build a band and say, OK, or tell a rookie you need to to check all these boxes yeah right well you never know it's a, it's personality it's selling yourself um you know poison was a, a group of four uh, very distinct individuals and i don't think that you know outside of uh, maybe phil and tracy um o'reilly was was a, a, a pretty uh, uh, unique and interesting guy, the, the drummer for Elegance. But he, 
but you know, he would stay in the background. Um, you know, the individuals in Poison were, um, I'm not saying they were like the Beatles, but just as the Beatles were four very distinct, different individuals, uh, so were the guys in Poison. Um, I don't think that uh, everybody knew everybody's name, in, in, you know, in L.A. Guns. I don't think that that you know that, that record buyers, um, you know, could could um, decipher any personality, any specific personality in the band. So that that may be one of the things. Right. And, and it's strange, though, because we have these nameless, faceless bands. I mean, you, you, you look at Foreigner and Sticks that we mentioned before, and most people, if you say Dennis Elliott played in which band, they'd say, I, I, I don't know. Right? And yet you have bands like Kiss where you go, oh, yeah, Gene, Ace, Peter, Paul, gotcha. It, it's, right. ama- it's amazing how we have these bands that, that are completely yeah. nameless, faceless, and others – but, but, you know, brand trumps. Anyway, yeah. uh, we could go on forever because there's there's so many albums. We haven't done Tooth and Nail. We haven't talked about Mother's Finest. Uh, we haven't hit the Canadian mm. band Glass Tiger. But perhaps mm. we will save it for a part two. Is there is – there, here's the stupid question because you have to have a stupid question. But, okay, uh, you've done all these <laughs> albums. Hit it. Is there is there the one that you, for whatever reason, because of the moment or because it meant something special or unique or or the or the guys involved, where you just go, yeah, that's the one. Like, is there that one that's either the best selling or the greatest memories or just connected to your heart, where you go, if I had to throw them all away, this is the one I would keep because it means something yeah. to me. Yeah, I had the most fun. Um... I think of, of of any record doing Heaven Tonight. Uh, I think that's really well written, really well produced. Just just a great a great record. And right after it is is the producer's first record. Um, just loved it. So yeah, the producers were. Those, what a great band! And, and and let's see. Let's. I'm just going to look at the, on the misses here. What song did you put from them? Uh, what's two, he two got? Songs, you put think. two. Let me see. Uh, what's he got? Let me see. Then we've got Mickey's Monkey by Mother's Finest. Well, oh, love it. so good. Mother's Finest. So good. No, I see two Mother's Finest, no. but I see one producers. You've got Truth. Oh, okay. Go- Truth gonna okay. set you free by the Mother's Finest, as long along with Mickey's Monkey. And yeah. Blinded by Glass Tiger and Pariah by yeah. the way. Great, great. I love those I love the songs on that on that side, the Mrs. side. Yeah, yeah it's, they're good. It, it's, you know? And I'll just say this again because I, I I've talked about this Mrs. album before and people go, How dare he say Alvita Zane is a miss? That it's like, no, 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 people. He doesn't mean miss as in they suck. He means miss as right. in they should have been massive and 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 it's just yeah. funny that 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 people have this perception that by saying that they are missed that it's some kind of you know well no re- knock. it's not remember a knock. The, the the title uh the, of that particular private you know limited run uh cd was the greatest hits and the greatest misses yes yes 
you know, total compliment so. to both to, to, to all the bands yeah. it's just fun anyway yeah. um, Tom always a pleasure and of course I will just quickly remind folks head over to Stone Over Farm so S-T-O-N-O-V-E-R-F-A-R-M dot com it is a wonderful. Do you call it a bed and breakfast? Because I call it a bed and breakfast, right? It's, it, a, it's a luxury bed, a luxury bed and breakfast, all sweets um, and all kinds of goodies. And I have stayed there myself, probably now, boy, ten years ago. It's, it's time. It's long, time to come yeah. back. Just long time. Absolutely gorgeous property. And and go if you go over to stoneoverfarm.com, you can actually see the property. Gorgeous, yep. and it it is one of the favorite vacations we have ever had. It is it is oh that's it is peaceful. It is quiet, but all, but not just that. The drive in through the Berkshires, just the whole scenery, just it 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 really is like a scene in a movie. That entire drive, and then you get up to the prop. It it really is like some kind of cinematic thing. <laughs> it, it's great, gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Well, come back, y'all. Y'all come back now. We we will come back, and uh, <laughs> and of course, I will remind the folks if uh, you have any pictures of Tom and any of these oh, bands, yeah. Love Hate, Glass Tiger, Cheap Trick, LA, anyway. whoever, uh, send them over to me at MitchMinute dot uh, no MitchMinute at AOL dot com MitchMinute at AOL dot com, and I will gladly send them over to Tom for use in his book and he will uh, give you credit and uh, listen uh, I, I hope uh, I'm looking forward to this book coming out because I'm sure the stories are going to be great and I would love to get into details yeah. you know here an hour on a show you got we got some nice uh, clips and sounds and some stories but a book is where you can really sort of tear it down and really get get in there and, and I'm looking forward to it very much looking forward well, to it yeah well let's hope it's out by uh, sometime soon. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. Okay, see you later. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.